Hey, welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Check the Mark. I'm Mark Lucero. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for bearing with me. There was a little bit of an unplanned hiatus. Life gets in the way. get busy doing a couple things here and there, but I'm back, and I got a great guest today. Bradley Klon stops by. This is, I think, my longest show maybe I've ever done, but it's because Brad was such a good guest. We got into so many different things. Tune in for that after the break. First, we're in the back end of the French Open on the women's side, the final set. Bukova took apart Arena Sabalenka in a good three-setter in the women's semis. She's playing Iga Swiatek back in the final for two years in a row there. On the men's side, in the men's semis, Novak Djokovic, he's playing Carlos Alcaraz. That's a match everyone's been looking forward to, maybe since the draw was made. The other semi, Casper Ruud quietly making his way through the draw, also quietly making his way through the draw, sort of, Sasha Zverev. It's going to be a good last weekend of tennis in Roland Garros, and from there it's on to the grass. But first, after the break, it's Bradley Klon. All right, welcome to the pod, Bradley Klon. We're here at the Santa Monica Tennis Center. Uh, if anyone hears, there's a little bit of pickleball happening in the background. Well, thanks for coming on. <laughs> Great to be here with you, Mark. Nice sunny day in L.A. So I'm going to run through a bio real quick. From Poway, in the greater San Diego area, 32 years old, went to Stanford, been on tour. We'll say you've been a professional for 11 years, on yeah. tour a little bit less than that because of some injuries right. and stuff that's happened. Um, you're a player with an absolutely electric forehand. Um as a San Diego guy, you share my pain of growing up as a San Diego sports fan. There's something, there's a, there's a big group of us San Diego yeah. kind of guys on tour, and I feel like after some of these painful sports losses that happen throughout the year, there's like a shared yeah. pain when we run into each other at tournaments. <laughs> there's some bonding, for sure. So, Commiserating. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, Padres in the playoffs, you know, Chargers. It's interesting, though, now, like, as a San Diego guy, now an L.A. guy, yeah. the Chargers leaving San Diego doesn't hurt me so much. I don't know how you feel about it. It's kind of convenient having them in L.A. Yeah, I still root for them, but I was definitely annoyed and unhappy that they left San Diego. They're a San Diego team. Yeah, yeah. I San Diego. Like, I still, I still nobody cares about the yeah. them in L.A. Like, yeah. I just, it's a tough market to break into. They had they had the San Diego fan base. So, as a pro player, well, like, first in college, you won the NCAA singles as a sophomore in 2010. 2012, you graduated and turned pro. Your first full year on tour was 2013, and you finished the end of the year top 100. Mm-hmm. Prior to injuries, what were you thinking? Like, man, this is easy. This happened fast. You know, I don't. Or were you thinking there wasn't period? any? There wasn't any of that. I think I. It took me a year. So I had a surgery in college, and I was healthy by the time I played NCAA's my senior year and was able to jump right into the pros. But I felt like it took me a year to get the confidence that I actually had the game and belonged. I, I remember having a stretch. like I could just never break through the quarterfinals in a challenger. I was I felt like I was one of those guys that was mentally tough in the first rounds. I wanted it badly. I would compete. I didn't have any of those, I guess, matches where you see guys just like, the weeks get to them. And right. I, yeah. you, know, you just kind of throw away a first round and you're not really there. I felt like I always hung my hat on being there every every week. I, I don't. I didn't lose a first round match for the first, um, I think, until February, January or February of 2013. So that was probably six month stretch where I was winning matches. And I thought that really helped me because it, I got into matches, I got more reps, but again, I just couldn't break over that hump, and I remember 
Wimbledon 2013, I was struggling mentally and I lost a match. I was serving 5 4, 40 love in the third set on grass. And you have to, like, like my, my serve obviously improved over the years, but I always serve forehand and played a lot of doubles in college, could volley. And, and then I also served for the match again at 7 6, and that match ended up losing 9 7. And I just, I went in a, a dark place for a week and I came out of it with a renewed sense of like, all right, we're going to just unload everything. We're going to lay it out on the table and we're going to see how good I can be. And I, there was never a, I made the top hundred. It was like, all right, next week, next week, next week. And I, I started working with Stan Boster, who was traveling with Mitchell Kruger and Bjorn Fertangel at the time. And he just, he saw that I didn't really have a coach and was like, all right, we work well together. He had done two weeks in France with me in Bordeaux and in Paris, and we were up on the courts at 7:38 in the morning. And you know, we'd, I'd play a match. We were back on the practice court, and I always had that work ethic. And we just rode it. Like I started feeling more confidence. I finally broke through. I made my first final in Winnetka, and it was like the floodgates opened. All of a sudden, I believed that I belonged at, the, at least at the challenger level and final final semi got my first title won around at the u.s open and it just it happened very quickly i will say that it, it happened i felt like i got on one of those hot streaks where just everything's clicking mentally more so than even game wise yes i was improving but i think i played much better tennis five six years down the road than I did when I was at my career high but I was just mentally so I was so confident I was knew in the back of my head that I was going to find a way to pull these matches out um, but it, it, it did happen quickly and got to 63 in the span of, I went from 180 to 63 and probably I want to say it was six six months and then it took me, I didn't really adjust once I got to the top 100. And I don't even know if it was adjustment as much as, I didn't really know how to handle, I guess, more scrutiny inside the top 100, playing bigger events. You, These guys can expose your weaknesses a little better than the challenger guys. Right. They've seen you. Like Now all of a sudden, things were starting to... One, they're getting difficult, and two, I hurt my back again. Mm -hmm. And the combination of like just not trusting my body late in like in matches at all, and not being able to trust that I could go on the practice court and work the same way that I did getting up there, uh, it it hurt mentally. I, I struggled with anxiety. I had started getting panic attacks in Paris. I'd never experienced anything like that before. I and to top it off, like I was injured. <laughs> like, yeah. I ended up needing the surgery a few months later, um, and so it was. I would say it was a, the kind of the full spectrum you of emotions full range. on tour in a very short period of time. So before we get to like that, like that heavy, the heavier stuff, you know, that first round match in, in at the U.S. Open in 2013 mm -hmm. kind of glossed over one of my most like vivid memories. I mean, there, there's a few matches I've seen, like, as a spectator that yeah. really stand out in my mind. And 
that first round match on Court 17 is one of them. Yeah. That, to me, was one of the most exciting matches I've ever seen courtside. Yeah. How was that match for you? I mean, because, again, this, you're a year out of school. Yeah. You're, you know, you're breaking on to, like, the scene, and you're playing yeah. a guy who was maybe, like, top 15 in the world the is, year before. Is that Meltzer? Meltzer. Yeah, that's right. So that was, <laughs> funny enough, that's my only five-set win, and I got it right away. That, so that was my first summer on tour. I remember, again, it was funny because I, we talked about unable to break through with the challengers yeah. like get past the quarters and believe but I went into that US Open as a wild card in qualifying won three matches in straight sets like I felt like a lot of those matches throughout the summer just I was building confidence like, yeah. I lost I was winning a few more matches each week I beat Igor Andrea first round in Aptos and that was my first top 100 win mm. and I actually played Rob Farr in the quarters there, and that was like a—I mean, I had so many battles with him in college. Yeah. I felt like we were wearing the Trojan and yeah. Cardinal uniforms again. But like that win and against Andrea gave me the confidence. Like, oh, this is a top hundred player. He's good, but he's not unbeatable. I, I can play at this level, and then I took that confidence in and. Qualified, and I mean, I remember walking out to that court 17 for the first round, and I had played Sam a few years ago at the right. U.S. Open as the NCAA wild card, but this felt different because I was, this is my career now, and I was shaking. I I remember like one not. Trusting. Oh, you were nervous. I thought, oh, I, I was thought so you were, nervous. I you were gonna say you felt comfortable. I, I was felt so like nervous. <laughs> I was so nervous. I like my legs were shaking walking out on the court. I was starting to feel dizzy. Did you come from Ash? Yeah, long walk so that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're as far as it gets, and they take you around the back <laughs> yeah, yeah. of court 17, and it was night. I had all my fraternity brothers there. It was like electric. I mean, one of the best atmospheres yeah. I have played in. And I remember the first set, like, trying to keep my emotions, like, not show any emotions, to conserve energy, not trusting that I was going to be able to last five sets. I never and I played four sets with Sam, but it just felt different. Like, he was a buddy of mine. We trained together. He was nervous. Like, I didn't think I was going to last. And all of a sudden, I find myself up two sets to one and and really had settled. I was down a set and a break, I think, in that match and really settled down and found my game. And four set, five, like, all of a sudden, I start cramping in the fourth. And I'm like, ah, oh, geez, like... Do you think it was a fitness cramping, or was it like a nerve? It was 100% like, nerve. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we know our so what, good buddy so Rodney Marshall yeah. was running the fitness for me, and the whole USTA coaching staff yeah, yeah. was the in the corner over there. Yeah. Like They rolled deep yeah. in the open, and they're all like, Rocket, like, what's up with this guy's fitness? Yeah. <laughs> He's getting it from all angles. And I knew it was nerves because mm -hmm. I actually, and it's one of the few times this has ever happened, I, the fifth set I blacked out. Like, I completely relaxed myself out of the nerves. I don't know. I still, to this day, it was one of the best sets of tennis I've ever played. I don't even remember what happened. I wasn't thinking. It was one of those moments where, as an athlete, like, you're in the zone. Right. And you just, you know, if you start thinking about it, you'll knock yourself out of it. I was in the zone. And one at 6-4 in the fifth. And just, I mean, still to this day, one of my most memorable memorable matches it's a lot of firsts it was obviously my first u.s open win first tour level win first five setter um first grand slam like i had earned my way into the main draw and it just uh, i think we and it was a night yeah my night, night sessions are electric 
It was the only day match still going on. The day fans are hanging out so trying anybody, to get in exactly. for 17. Yeah. Anybody who still wants to watch some tennis, that was the only thing they could if they had a day session pass. And you know, I think we finished at 10. I, was, I, I had doubles the next day. And I, I think I slept like three, four hours. I didn't get to sleep till three a.m. I was so yeah. So what's it like as a young up. American? You have a first round match like that. Yeah. You know, you're all jacked up from after, from the energy, from the nerves. You get back to the locker room. What's the what's the process? You're trying to cool down and recover. Yeah. You're going through media. How how was that yeah. experience for you? It was it was a whirlwind because it was all a first, and I, I had a lot of support there. I obviously, had my family, but um, Leo Acevedo was helping me at the time. There I had. Rodney running the fitness and just like and all the coaches came in and just like help like immediately get on the bike just start like cooling down stretching see the physio immediately putting a recovery shake in getting any sort of food Um, and then media like you know that's part of the beauty of the sport is you know quickly like right in and especially at that hour was let's try and get as much of this stuff done as it can and then get out of there and Truthfully, I don't even remember if I knew the importance of massage therapy. Right. Then, like, I, I think I'd stuck around and probably some sort of treatment a little bit. Um, but I was also 22, and uh, I definitely didn't bounce back as quickly as I would like. I, I know getting out there for doubles the next day and then playing Gasquet that, that, I guess, two days after the singles, and that was that was definitely a a welcome to the tour moment of um, it's hot you're in court 17 again you have all these great emotions from two days before you gotta go back out there you gotta go right back to work (laughs) and he drummed me 3-3-1 and and I still remember he put one of the top 10 like shots he went around the post when he was up two sets and 4-1 double break or something I was just like alright this is one of those where you just Let's, uh, let's, let's learn from it. Learn from it, <laughs> yeah. get off the court, and, and reset. So the next couple of years were rough. I mean, you only played a handful of tournaments. Uh, it was your next back surgery, is yeah. that right? Yeah. What were those years like for you? Was it like, this is kind of the process. I know we need to do surgery, we need to do rehab, and this is the process to get back on tour. This is like a, a protocol that I know is going to work, or this is like, oh, man, my career is hanging in the balance here. It, it was a tale of two kind of... <laughs> sections okay. I felt like initially it was very much like alright I had a great medical team we get in alright we're going to do the surgery this is the rehab process you'll be back out there in say five or six months everything was going to plan like I, I was meticulous like, if the PT told me to do something like alright to the T like nothing necessarily more but nothing less it was we follow the plan and we're going to see results and I felt great I, Honestly, I was more mobile. I felt better than even before, what I remembered before the surgeries. And I was back training. I think it was almost five months post-surgery. And I was, I was feeling... Like right on time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was... We were starting to have conversations of, like, do I... When do I start? Mm-hmm. Do I do I wait for the protected? Um, do I, like come back early or I think if I had to wait for the protected I had I maybe had to start at the US Open or do I like just come back and the summer's great like I can play a few events in the summer I was I was to the point where I was playing sets like I was playing full matches in practice and I went to the beach I was just 
playing like, in the sand, like beach volleyball. And I woke up the next day and my back was in a spasm. And it sent me, um, it sent me to a really, really bad place mentally where I just, I had known that if I needed another surgery, it was going to be a fusion. The word fusion scared the living daylights out of me. It wasn't what I wanted. And it just really made me think like, it would, I just had a hard time with the conflicting thoughts. I, I know I have more in the tank in tennis. I, I was only 24, 25. I was just turning 25. Yeah, I'd had two back surgeries, but like, if I hadn't already gotten the 63 in the world, maybe I would have just said, you know what, we'll find something else. But I knew I had the level. Yeah. And but then there was this other thought of like, well, I don't want to be in pain the rest of my life if I get a fusion. Like all these like fears, what's this gonna do? And it sent me. It, it took me. I would say it altered the course of my career. Yeah. In that, the biggest battle I have is fighting the mental of like the injuries, and even to this day, it's the fear of the like I I've lived in fear of back pain for a long time um and I finally I remember like I started working with Chang at Exos yeah and I I'm not kidding I told my parents I was gonna retire like a week before I found Chang and I was gonna retire I was starting to look for jobs and and then I just ran into an old fitness coach he had me read a book on the mental side of back pain everything started speaking to me like i remember when you were reading yeah, this book yeah, yeah. like everything started i was like okay that's me that's me that's me like everything th- started clicking i was started working with a sports psychologist dr insler and um and then started you know chang and i was like holy shit like i might actually be able to do this like i got in in working with them like i got back to as physically strong as i felt like i'd ever been this is Chang Lee. Chang was yeah. running the Exos site at Carson. Yeah. Chang was a former, played tennis in college, as far yeah. as that he, that he says. Yeah. <laughs> and then he worked with the Red Sox, worked with a bunch of other right. high-performing athletes. Yeah. And, and he was unbelievable in teaching me how to move again. And not just teaching me how to move, but teaching me how to trust my body again. And I got back, and I... Made the challenge. I made the quarters of my first challenger back. The quality made the course, and I was like, "Oh, this is like riding a bike." And then that's when the real like that was probably the single worst mindset I could have had, because um, it took me another year and a half to get back to the top hundred after that. Which is still pretty fast. I mean, yeah. you see these players who are out there, like you know, I see team out there, stru- you know, Wawrinka uh, yeah. like coming back from injury. Um, it's not a fast progression, but it seems like every time you've broken to the top hundred. It's been what most people would say, man, that's a pretty fast yeah. rise. Yeah. Which it's, goes to say the level, like you said, the level that you talked about, the level that you had. Yeah. And I think for me it's been, I've been able to get on these streaks, I guess. Calm streaks, just, just being able to showcase my level. And I thought it was more sustainable the way I did it the last time when I broke top 100 I started with doing it at the tour level mm. started playing masters events challenging myself against the best players and winning like gathering top 40 top 50 top like wins in a row going to Cincinnati you know qualifying at Wimbledon winning around there getting to play on center court against Kyle Edmund like an experience that I'll never forget going to 
Toronto, Cincinnati qualifying winning rounds. Like I started beating guys. That, like, like okay, this is this is what it takes to be an actual professional on the ATP tour level, going week in week out. Like this is this is your life. This is your job. And guys, I think do look a little differently at players who make the top hundred. You know, mostly like on like big challengers, like yeah. you know those clay guys in South America who just stay there and. Yeah. They show up at Wimbledon, uh, right. ranked rank like 65, yeah. you know, show or whatever. Show up Monday morning to <laughs> yeah. cast the check. With the, with the red socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, versus the guys who, yeah, who bust their way through tour qualities, show yeah. up at the Masters events and pick guys off. Like, you're, you've, like, earned your stripes yeah. at that point. Yeah. It felt better because I think there was a part of me that felt like a bit of a fraud. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, the first time I yeah. did it because I did it at the challenger level. I mean, look, I still had to win. Like, still I won, win. you know, I won two challenges at the start of 2014 like it was something like 18 or 19 and one in a two month stretch at the challenger level like I felt unbeatable at the challenger level and yeah I got to 63 in the world and I think you put a lot of tour guys at that level I don't think they could run a streak off like that because you see guys drop down drop yeah. down to the challenger level and Boom, they're out first or second round. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most impressive, and actually Max Purcell did it when, this year winning three straight challenges in India, but like one of the most impressive results I remember seeing was Query winning three straight challengers. Having, he was already, I mean, he'd already have been up 20, top 20 in the world, was down at, I don't know what he was then, 60 or 70, and went and won three straight. Like, I don't think people understand how difficult it is to win 15 straight matches in a row. At, at any level, I mean the challenger guys can still play at their peak level, um, but yeah, and the, when I got to the tour level, and then I started to think like, okay, I, there was there was a little bit of immaturity and like young, being I was still 23 at the time. I hadn't been on tour for I'd been on tour for a year and a half. It wasn't like it started at 17. I'd come out of college and just been on tour, so everything was new. And I just, I don't think I had that confidence that I gained in going through it, going through tour qualities. So after this, you kind of hovered maybe between 75 and 150 prior to the pandemic. Yeah. And then the pandemic hits, and then 2021, you missed the whole year. Yeah. Yeah, I, the pandemic was obviously a weird time for everyone. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's, I think everyone had their own sets of challenges mm -hmm. for me my back flared up again yeah I, and it wasn't good when i started like i remember i threw it out in may i think like, it was a weird time i didn't feel fully healthy at the start of 2020 i was having knee issues and it was one of those when code hit like if you start like, do you just keep training? Do you? Yeah. What do you do? Like for the younger guys, maybe they're still fresh. For the guys like myself and even the older guys, I mean, I was, I guess I was twenty nine, turning thirty, but I'd had some mileage on mm -hmm. the body. Do you let that time use the time to just chill and like kind of heal? And so I, I took some time off. I'd hit a little bit and then started getting back into it, and I threw my back out again and managed it, went to the US Open. That was when they didn't play qualities. Mm -hmm. I was in the main draw and I mean, there's a lot of money on the line.
online. They're yeah, like, if you haven't earned anything. Especially and, coming out of a pandemic. Yeah, coming yeah. out of a pandemic. I, you know, I don't remember exactly what the first round check was, but it was not insignificant. Um, and so I was like, all right, we're going. And I just, I tried to play, and it was, I just pushed through the back until it broke. I was like, I need to get back. I need to play. I need to get back into the top 100. But I, I wasn't healthy, and I, I remember I hit another low point there again in Croatia where I, I was playing a challenger. I, it was the first time I've ever retired from a match in my career, um, in my pro career. Mm. And it was because I like physically couldn't walk with my back. Like They had to, one of the guys had to carry the, my bag off the court, and I, I knew that in there, I was like, I did it again. I don't want to. It was hard to admit, um, and I struggled for a long time accepting it. But I, in deep down, I knew I'd blown the disc again. Hmm. We're here two years later, and we're talking again. Like, so what's your what's your why? You know, what's the why for you? I think it's much more. You know, you alluded to it earlier. I think if you're there's guys probably your age that are still out there that have never made the top hundred. They're still yeah. trying to play. And I, there's something that seems easier about that, and there's something yeah. that also seems easier to like walk away when you're that. But when you've right. when you've been there and you've touched it, yeah. and you've been in center court, you've been on Armstrong court playing the best players in yeah. the world. I feel like there it's such a test of your character to continue to go out there and try to do it. Yeah, I feel like there has to be a really strong why. Yeah, and it's it's something that's changed over the years a lot, and I think it's something that I really struggled to find as well and after going through the third surgery because I wasn't you know, you're hearing it from all different angles like why would you keep going like you had this amazing career you were 60 60 in the world you've like I've done it all hmm. I've played every Grand Slam multiple times I've played on the mecca of tennis center court Wimbledon I've played these incredible matches and I've been able to travel and and live my childhood dream. And you see like, okay, what's like, you know, why keep pushing? Like, what's like, because if you make the third round of a slam for the first time, like what difference is it going to make? And at the expense of, are you gonna ruin, like you're gonna ruin your hip, for example, or your knee and, you know, are you gonna be able to pick your kids up mm -hmm. 10 years down the road? And there's a like, it was a long process and I got I remember like getting to the point last year right before the like a month before the French where I was struggling I was like I can't keep doing this I'm going into rehab every day like I'm not seeing any improvement I was like screw it like I'll stop at the open but I'm going to enjoy the few tournaments like try and enjoy competing and enjoy tennis again because it has like it has brought me a lot of pain like physically mentally like I love the sport and it has been so good to me and has opened so many doors that I would never experience otherwise but I can't hide the fact that it's brought me a lot of pain too and I wanted to go out on my own terms I think was really the why and I got back and I got to the US Open healthy still protect is left and I still okay at it on a good day 
And there's a tournament in San Diego around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. I mean, that was, I was like, all right, I'm going to stop in San Diego because I want to play that. And I was set to stop last year and was looking for jobs. And I just, it was, I wasn't, again, I wasn't really sure, like, if stopping was the right call. Am I stopping too early? Do you want to, like, most athletes stop too late. It's, the, right. it's, it's hard to give up. It's been hard to give up for me. You miss, like, yeah, I missed the adrenaline rush. Like, I missed getting on the plane, going to Australia, and playing the Grand Slams, and, like playing in front of a big crowd at Indian Wells, which I, was the first real tournament I grew up going to, being from San Diego. It's hard to replicate that feeling, like when you're out there and all the eyes are. You on don't you. get it walking into a WeWork, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I, and that's not to say that I don't look forward to that because I think it's just a different level of of satisfaction and a different level of um, enjoyment but it's not going to replicate playing on court 17 yeah, very and few having things like everyone chant USA and like, have the whole crowd or even like playing Nish Corey at the US Open um, was another one of my like really memorable matches like is you can't replicate it well, and it's not a bad thing it's just that's reality. It is what it is. Negotiating a good term on a contract yeah. is not going to get you a standing ovation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, yeah, I, you know, I, I think my, I don't, wouldn't say that I have the grand aspirations to, to, like, I have to get back to top 100 or it's, like, coming back is going to be a bust. But I think if I look at it more broadly and how I can inspire people, it's like, yeah, you you can defy the odds. Like I've, I had my first back surgery in college. Like I got the top hundred within a year and a half. I had another one, and I came back. And like, I guess more of a don't let, don't be defined by the negative in your life. And there's there's still a lot out there that can be worked towards and earned, and um, it's just up to you. To what's the, the effort in? It. What's the book that you? mentioned earlier that was transformative it was called it was literally called healing back pain uh, by dr john sarna who passed away um previously but it yeah it it was i mean look it was a combination of that working with i tend to think that things kind of fall into place at the right time when they're meant to like if you allow it and you start relaxing the mind a little bit and allowing some of the good to come in and not being so controlling. I think that was a hard thing. I tried to control my back so much that year, and then I just, it was when I said I was going to retire, <laughs> and I had this, you know, literally the next day, I was like, I told my parents I'm going to retire. I go in the next day for a Pilates class, and I run into my old strength coach, recommends me the book. I end up, you know, starting with Chang. I met Chang a week later. We started two, three weeks later. Like I had gone from not being able to hit a tennis ball for six months to training, like training within probably four to five weeks after that. You guys had a pretty good crew there. Like for that, there was one. I mean, one or two off seasons when it was like you, Sloan, yeah, and we, Shelby, and we had a fun. It was a fun crew. Shelby, Sloan, myself, um, all off season. Like 
We put it in the hard yard. Putting in work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those were some tough morning yeah. workouts on the Kaiser machines. And yeah. I mean, doing the running with the with the Raptor yeah. tied to you guys. Like, I, I thought all of you guys, I was so impressed with how you guys would play in January after that sort of off yeah. season. Yeah. No, it was it was great for me. And it was fun to to work with. The, I, I've known Shelby and Sloan since they came on tour. So to be able to work with them and just, I guess, build more of that camaraderie as opposed to just going at it alone every yeah. day it's... well let's get away from some of this heavy stuff yeah. I want to talk I mean you're a Stanford guy Silicon Valley is around the corner yeah. I'm sure you know 15 or 20 of your classmates have you know invented cool apps or done cool things yeah. and the tech world I want to talk about technology and tennis you know in the past week I think this has really been very um, very much on my radar one was you know a friend actually connected me with a company that this is something you'll be interested in too they've developed a modality that resets a person's nervous system after some sort of trauma or stimulating event which I think yeah. is incredible they've done kind of research with you know with the military they're doing something with the NFL and blah 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 anyway I thought that was pretty cool and then Apple's announcement this past week about the virtual reality goggles that everyone's been talking about yeah. um, are you a VR guy I haven't used it before I think there's a lot of interesting applications just on the mental side and being able to generate reps off the court I mean in one the ability to save your body from the pounding that it takes day in day out but certainly you have to find the balance to maintain the fitness because you have to go do it in a match but also if you're able to to perfect some of those mental reps I know I forget the name of the, the company but I know Stanford used it a lot um, even when I was in school for the quarterbacks and oh like yeah, in football and being able to see, you know, read the defense. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think that's a, that's a really interesting opportunity for tennis to break into and just continue to further the game. There was a group at the Open the past year that was doing demos. I did a demo okay. with them and doing some ground strokes and some volleys and stuff. I mean, I think the the best application is for the return to serve. If you're facing a particular kind of player, yeah. like seeing that delivery and getting kind of like dialed in. Yeah. But I did their ice hockey demo and it was crazy. Like they're like, what arena do you want to be in? I said, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And instantly I'm like inside Madison Square Garden. I'm turning and looking and I'm seeing like, you know, the upper deck, the rafters. Yeah. And then we did like a power play simulation. Like it, it was really, oh, wow. it was really cool. Okay. And like you're That's flinching. super cool. You're flinching when the snapshots, yeah. are, when the snapshots are coming at you. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't cut out for hockey. <laughs> <laughs> no, me neither. But so I guess getting back to like the whole idea, like on the tech side, as a player, do you see like emerging technologies as kind of like a player? Do you see it with like your Stanford hat on? Do you see it as a mix of the two? I guess a little bit of both. From the from the player side, I certainly see like how everybody is about performance. Like how can we maximize, like squeeze out the extra one percent in performance? What are we doing? to recover on a daily basis what are we doing like are there certain stats that we need to pay attention to for our game like all these little like i personally struggle to dive into the stats because i almost got overwhelmed with it like there's so much and you know how do you break down what's actually going to move the needle and what's ancillary and just kind of looks cool but it's not going to help um and the same thing on like the recovery side, the nutrition side. Um, I know other sports are further. Like I've talked to a couple people on the baseball analytics side, and they're constantly like, 
even in between innings, they're going back and tweaking their like release point for a pitcher and. I don't even know how that worked. Like in tennis, yeah. when you know, I guess, you know, on the changeover, do you do you tweak like your service motion or? Yeah, that's um, the thing. Like I was at Dodger Stadium for batting practice a couple days ago, and the guys have the iPad set up right next to the batting cage. So like, to take some swings, walk over, look at the iPad, and yeah. my buddy told me that they're not looking at the video; they're looking at the like launch angle and the okay. exit velocity and all that stuff. And I'm like, I like. I was trying to think about it from you know a serve point of view. I think that's probably the most basic yeah. thing for us to think about. Like, oh, that that serve was five miles per hour slower. Like, what do I need to adjust? Like, yeah. Uh, but that's the way I think sports have, are going. Yeah. Are trending. I think it's more interesting for the the serve most, and then the return. I mean, the serve is the only thing that you have control over in tennis, and like everything's a little bit different. You're always on the move. Serve return. I feel like those stats are for me are a little bit more meaningful than yeah. the ground stroke and every bowl's different but yeah we we are certainly behind in, in that regard well it's also kind of like the inherent thing about tennis right is that as, as a player like you know you don't have a whole front office right. of like you know quantitative guys who are breaking down the stuff and then delivering you maybe like three yeah. things that are most relevant like you either have to do it yourself or you rely on the one or two or three or however many guys that you employ right. to kind of do that but still, like it's a it's a lean operation. Yeah, it's it's definitely an upfront investment that unless you are at the top, you, it's one of those where it's like I would say it's not financially worth your while just because of the investment that it requires upfront, and you have to put food on the table. And yeah. we know the economics of tennis that there aren't that many players that actually are able to earn a sustainable living. It's much different, like you said, if you have a whole analytics team in the front office that you aren't responsible for paying for breaking all this down and being able to provide you with say it's one or two digestible points like okay let's focus on these two things for today and then you can wrap your head around it but when I've like when I've personally looked at some of the data myself I'm like hey well I'm going to be thinking too much about this while I'm playing like I need I need a coach that can look through it and pull one or two things that he thinks going to be the most impactful and then we can have a discussion about it but I miss all the other noise right and maybe not tell you hey Brad like you you win like 26% of the points here right and I so you're out there calculating okay if I miss this one my percentage is dropping to yeah. 24% yeah. yeah and I'm that guy that would yeah. like okay he serves there 50% of the you know say 60% of the time he's he hasn't really gone there yet so I'm going to start guessing but sports is uh, tennis I find it's more of an, a little bit of an art form too like mm. stats don't always like there's flow of the mass there's what's particularly working on that day like context certainly you know unless you have the same stats against the same opponent in multiple sample sizes it's hard because I'm going to do something different against say like Stevie as I am against Marcos or right. like um I've got my base game, but there's going to be different strategies that might skew the stats. How do you um, do? You watch tennis? Depends. Not always. Do you watch? Have you been watching the French? I haven't. Uh, especially being injured now, I I have not watched. How do you? I, I guess I was gonna say like, how do you consume? Or I guess or when you talk to people who do watch tennis, are they happy with how they can you know how they can consume tennis? Obviously. 
you know, for the younger generation, they're taking in media in a different form, you know, a lot of YouTube, yeah. a lot of short form stuff. And yeah. then other people are watching linear channels. Like, what, how do you see that yeah, evolving? It's, it's changed a lot, it's even since I've been on tour. I mean, it's awesome. That one tennis channel has, I mean, it's great. That I know that, like, they have exclusive coverage of the Alcaraz um, Djokovic semifinal tomorrow. And just being able to, like, literally own the whole, at least in the States, mm -hmm. all of the 250s, 500s, 1000s everywhere, and the French Open. Um, and also with Tennis Channel going to YouTube TV and T2 becoming a free, like, not part of the sports. I have a Samsung TV. Package. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I get it too. Yeah. Um, so that's been nice. But, you know, I think it's great that, one, they're expanding to their reach and trying to get more people interested in tennis because, it, you know, it's, it's gone away from ESPN. Australia doesn't have that much coverage. Most of it's on ESPN Plus with the, the time difference. And, yeah, you mentioned, like, so much is going to mobile. Um, people are consuming it, like, YouTube, just highlights. Like, the, uh, what's the word? I guess, like, the attention span just isn't there. Um, so that's, you know, it's it's on new technology to try and draw, draw eyeballs to the sport um, and, and find new interactive ways to, to get – um, fans engaged and socially engaged and it's and it's interesting that I, I've got a couple of buddies that started a, a company called Playback that's trying to engage fans socially in whatever sport so it's, it's a product you can watch live sports in, in perfect sync with whoever if you have a favorite podcaster or a creator or say an athlete that wants to jump on and it's a much more informal setting. You still need your access to um, the channel. So you like, if you want to watch the Tennis Channel, like you still need. You have to have your own subscription to Tennis Channel to be able to watch this. But you're in a you're in a room. Like you can join and um, get on stage with the creator or podcaster athlete, and it's it's more interactive. I guess certainly still have the text chat, but you can actually interact face-to-face -face through a screen almost like a zoom watching you know like actually have a conversation and it's been interesting to see that see that like talk with them about it and see their they had a kind of a pilot program with the NBA and NBA League Pass and how it's starting to drive some subscriptions to the NBA League Pass and just people I, I feel like people are craving community they want to how can we engage more than just sit on our couch and and watch, you know, say the semifinal tomorrow? Just watch it on our couch. Instead by of our, being by a ourself. passive viewer, it's yeah. more of an experiential thing. It's kind of like it's basically like the modern day version, right, of going to the Green Bay Packers sports bar. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's exactly. doing it online with an even broader community. From what I heard, the Golden State Warriors had a. Yeah, I don't know. It was a Golden State Warriors influencer or, or reporter or somebody who had a really big following, and they had a really cool room yeah. for their games throughout the year. Yeah, it's it's bringing the sports bar to your living room. I think is the best analogy I've heard. Is how you know what if you can, what if you can bar hop from sports bar to sports bar based on who you want to watch, all from the click of your television or the click of your computer screen, and interact with meet new people, interact with different communities, and, and just have a lot more active 
viewing experience. Yeah, I think it's a really cool platform. I mean, I think I mean you can see the, the Novak fans getting together because yeah. <laughs> they don't want oh, yeah. you know they don't want to hear anything from the people like you know whoever Roger or Rafa. Right. But yeah, I think there's um, especially with with the capabilities you have now via streaming or you know putting it online. You know, you're not limited to you're not limited to who a cable subscriber I guess is picking up. Right. You can appeal to a lot of different niche audiences. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a really exciting time for them, and it's you know, all guys I went to school with that were in... I didn't know they were um, Stanford guys. Yeah, at least a few of the guys that I know, RJ who founded it, and um, a couple of the guys, Kevin and Brandon, that are on the product and the community operations team, Like they were all my fraternity brothers, and exceptionally smart guys that uh, are huge sports fans. That's cool. Do you have any things, any dates lined up? Um, yeah, so I think we're going to, so the MLP Super Finals on ESPN2, Sam Query's going to jump on and host a, I guess we'll call it a, a community room, so everybody can, you know, go and basically watch with Sam and his buddy Wes Burrows is going to jump on as well, so it'll be the first, I guess, trial and foray into racket sports, um, but I know everyone over there is super excited about that, that trial. So let's wrap this up. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions, and then we'll get out of here. This is going to be, I think, my longest show yeah. of, the, you know, <laughs> of the whole thing. So one person messaged me, and they wanted to ask one of the players, can you hear people in the crowd in the, in the big stadiums? Can you hear like someone like chirping you, or can you hear someone like you know, who's close to the court trying to talk to you? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I, it, it depends. Like, certainly, I say generally yes. I mean, I grew up playing college tennis, so that I have heard a lot worse than what somebody might be throwing at a professional tennis event. I think it's, you know, like, we've seen some players even talk about we need to right. yeah, make it more vocal. And Anything memorable said to you during a pro match? That, like, something that made you, like, like, like that was weird or just that was funny or something that made you laugh? Oh, nothing's coming to mind. Yeah, nothing's really coming to mind. You know, it's funny, people, I guess, maybe they assume Stanford people are, like, kind of mild-mannered. Like, my buddy who played baseball said the Stanford crowd was rough. Like, when, yeah. when SC went up there to Stanford. Oh, yeah. We, <laughs> those guys could have a fun time, and they, they weren't afraid. And I think that they were witty with their heckling. Yeah. It wasn't, they were, they were creative, and it was, they made you think about that. And like, pause and be like, what's he say? Like, it wasn't just... I, I would call it the general trash talk that yeah. people think is... Yeah, yeah, like, okay, yeah, I've heard that a thousand <laughs> times. you got to come up with something better than that. So in changeovers, are you a scan the crowd kind of guy or a watch the video board guy, or neither? Oof. I'll watch the video board, especially, like, I actually start looking for stats on the video oh, board. Oh, you do? Like, I'll definitely, I'm a guy that will look to when, up they, there. when they scroll the stats yeah. to figure out if, like, okay... Maybe I need to get that first serve percentage. I always wondered that. Bit. I always wondered that. Uh, worst locker room on tour. Oh, worst locker room on tour. Delray Beach. Uh, yeah, that's what I figured you were gonna say. Um, <laughs> last question: What do lefties not like that right-handers don't do enough of? What do lefties not like? I would say like. Probably rushing the forehand. I mean, every you're so like 
Yeah, I think, yeah. Brushing the forehand. All right, that's good to know. Good to know. Uh, Brad, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Mark. It was a pleasure. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) That's it for today. Big thanks to BK for making the time to come down to Santa Monica and chat. Really grateful for how honest and forthcoming he was. What a great talk, talking life, tennis, technology, all these different things. Hit me up. At Mark Lucero on Twitter, at Mark Lucero on Instagram. If you got any feedback, if you have any thoughts, you have any suggestions on who you want to hear from. Other than that, enjoy the last weekend of Rolling Garros. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Better yet, tell a friend. That's it. I am out. Look forward to talking to you from the grass coming up.